Thanks for tuning into Mixed Methods. I'm excited to share this week's episode and also to invite you to a Q&A with our guest, Dana Chisnell, next Thursday, April 13th in the Slack group. If you haven't already, you can join the 500 plus UX researchers in there by going to the community tab at mix-methods.org. And if you have a second, we would love to hear from you through a review on iTunes. Those really help us out. Here's today's episode. If you design with the users rather than for the users, you're gonna have much better outcomes. In the field of UX research, Dana Chisnell is a pioneer. As you will hear, she has lived and shaped its history and continues to do so. She's currently working as an adjunct professor at Harvard, co-director of the Center for Civic Design, and as a principal researcher at Usability Works. I went into this conversation with Dana expecting to focus on usability testing, how to do it, what makes someone great at it, etc., etc. Dana is a world-class expert on this. And as you'll see, we did discuss that towards the end. But Dana's experience in the U.S. digital service was a powerful reminder of the sometimes blurred lines between designer, product manager, and researcher that I couldn't help but dig into. So welcome. This is Ariel Sianflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Usability Testing, Tricking the Government into Working for People. I thought we could start. I came across um, a story on Medium that you had written about how you got your first job in usability, and I just loved it. Do you do you know the story I'm talking about? You know, you talked about being at a career fair in 1983. Oh my god! Oh yes, um, yeah. So uh, there I was, an English major at Michigan State, and. I went off, <laughs> I took a week off of school because Michigan State at the time was on a term schedule and went way late into June. And I took a week off from school and went to the Society for Technical Communications Conference, uh, where I worked in the employment booth uh, as a volunteer, which got me a discount on the conference registration. And I had got good coaching from excellent people to have a resume prepared. And so my job at the employment booth was to basically wrangle these sets of notebooks because we didn't have laptops then. Uh, Wrangle these sets of of notebooks where one set of notebooks was uh, job listings. So there was a page that would say a job description and where the company was and all those kinds of things. And the other set of notebooks had resumes in them. And this guy walked up to the table where I was working and I asked him, like I asked everyone, are you looking to fill a job or are you looking for a job for yourself? And he said, oh, I have an opening. And I pushed the resume notebooks toward him and asked him, you know, kind of what they were looking for in terms of qualifications. And I don't even remember what he said, but he got to my resume and I said, oh, here's a resume that you should look at. <laughs> <laughs> I think this person suits the description that you just gave. And he said, do you know this person? I said, yes, it's me. <laughs> um, but it turned out that I uh, actually was 
qualified for an interview at least because I had some writing experience. Uh, but I'd also taken a community ed class on programming, uh, which demonstrated to him that I was not afraid of the technology that I would be writing about. And um, it was excited about the initiative that I took to do that. So that's how I ended up at a research think tank that figured prominently in everything that we all know now about task analysis and about plain language and about procedure writing because the first thing that I did was I worked with a team that was writing the very first ever user-centered uh, documentation for software. So that's yeah, incredible to be part of that. <laughs> yeah, it was just an accident of timing. But like all the software that people were using at that time was on mainframes. Um, and the documentation would be uh, listed in order of the computational functionality. And it would be up the user to put it together and make it a thing. Uh, but we were writing user manuals for uh, administrative assistants and people who manage calendars. And like this was the first commercially available email system. Uh, it was called the Professional Office System. It was made by IBM. And uh, all of ours were task-based um, instead of functionality-based. And this was a radical innovation at the time. Yeah, I mean, and I love, you know, reading through that article, I was like, oh my gosh, I've never even thought of like, who was the first company that actually wrote a manual or something like some kind of documentation that was user-centered? Because like you're saying, it is pretty radical to actually um, totally change the paradigm of like who or how you're writing this documentation for, you know? Um, so it was fun to like stumble across that with you and be like, oh my gosh, <laughs> she's part of the history of this field. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm just a child, but um, right, I stand right on the time. shoulders of giants, really. Um, Jenny Reddish was my boss there, and she she did all the original research about this. She and her team, and um, so I just you know I just bask in the glow of that. I don't know about you guys, but my research nerd side was going nuts. The first user centered software documentation. I hadn't even heard about Jenny Reddish before this, but she was the founder of the research think tank that Dana went to work for. It was called the Document Design Center. This whole story is a great reminder of those who laid the groundwork of a world designed for us instead of just around us. Dana has an amazing history herself. Here's more on that. So I wanted to I, I wanted to talk about the rest of your career as well before we kind of jump into, um, you know, a, a story or... Um, an actual example that you have of leading a usability test. But I mean, you've had such an interesting career, right? And not everything is on LinkedIn, so I'm not sure what happened in the in-between <laughs> years. But, um, you know, the I mean, obviously what, what stands out most to me is consultant for um, the U.S. Digital Service. <laughs> yeah, that stands out the most to me, too. Yeah. Um, where to start on that story? So the United States Digital Service was formed by President Barack Obama in August 2014 in direct response to the healthcare.gov debacle. Um, for those of your audience who don't know the history of that, healthcare.gov is a website 
that is in support of the Affordable Care Act. In fact, it's it's a crucial part of the service design of the Affordable Care Act um, because it is the door through which uh, everybody who wants to get health insurance can go to either reach the national exchange or to their state exchange to shop for and sign up for health insurance. Uh, and at the time that uh, ACA was launched with healthcare.gov in October 2013, about 49 million people in America did not have health insurance. And this was meant to be a tool and a service to help a lot of those people get affordable health insurance. So when the, when the button was pressed and healthcare.gov was launched in October 2013, uh, a lot of people went to the website right away. And uh, within six or eight hours, the servers just crashed. They just fell over from the traffic. Nobody had anticipated this kind of response because nobody had ever made a government website of this importance before and where the service would be turned on on a particular day. So it actually took several months to fix the problems. And much of that was done by a group of people who came from the private sector who were recruited by the then federal CTO, Todd Park. So the open enrollment period was extended so people could get on. Uh, the system was stabilized. Uh, but it took three or four months. And the president and his staff looked at how the rescue happened and said, hey, you know what? Healthcare.gov is not the only system in the government that looks like this on the back end. And the Government Accountability Office tracks projects like this. And it turns out that they're around... 25 or 30 other projects that have the same kinds of characteristics. And so President Obama and his staff, including uh, Todd Park, who was the CTO, and Jen Palka, who uh, founded Code for America, who was a deputy CTO at the time, and a whole bunch of other super smart people are like, what if we made a, a team that was like a quick response firefighting team that would help agencies recover from problems like this and go in and help them with strategic work. That was ultimately how the digital service came about. So that started in August 2014. I joined in October 2014 uh, as the second design person in the digital service. I think we were like, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 people at that point. When I finished my two-year term in October 2016, there were uh, about 200 people in active service. It was a really amazing experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. I really, really, really loved uh, every team I worked with, every fed career person I ever worked with, and found every day to be excruciatingly frustrating and challenging. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so were you brought in, um, you know, obviously for your, for your usability expertise and you were working on, um, specifically immigration, right? So like how to improve the experience of applying for American citizenship? 
Yeah, so the day I walked in to the little startup that was the digital service, uh, there were three big projects that the digital service was facing. One was healthcare.gov. Second was uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs. And the third was at immigration. And uh, there were a couple of really exciting things about immigration that got my attention. One was that the president had pretty much telegraphed that he was going to take executive action on immigration uh, because Congress was not moving on immigration reform. We didn't know what he was going to do exactly or when he was going to do it, but we also knew uh, because uh, a digital service team that arrived ahead of me had done a discovery sprint at immigration. And they could see that this was going to be a big deal and that uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services wasn't really ready for it in terms of technology. Um, but also USCIS was moving from uh, the old model of software development where you just give a big pile of money to a contractor company and you give them requirements and they go away and they make a thing and then they deliver it um, to because that had failed for them. <laughs> yes, so very <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Designing their own software with all of the engineers and developers in-house. Now, they were all contractors, but they were in-house co-located with the Fed program managers and product owners. And uh, they were moving from a waterfall software development process to Agile. So all that was really interesting and exciting to me. And then I learned that there were no designers at USCIS. And uh, that challenge really attracted me for a number of reasons. And what I ultimately ended up working on was directing design, such as it was, for the software for immigration officers. So basically, giant piece of enterprise software that was moving immigration officers from a process where they're all paper all the time to all digital all the time, looking at all of the things that change because of that. And a lot of the work that I was doing there was really kind of tricking <laughs> tricking the software developers, the front-end developers, into doing user research and usability testing. Fortunately, they were willing for a variety of reasons. Yeah, how do you, I mean, I, how do you approach a project like that? Yeah, I mean, you just said, you know, you show up on your first day and it's like, okay, yeah, you, you should develop this huge enterprise piece of software without designers, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a decision that they, that USCIS had already made. They were well into it. They'd started this project in 2012 and they were about to launch one of the first benefits under this, you know, that would be supported by the system, it's called the I-90. And unfortunately, they still use form numbers, mm-hmm. which was a campaign of mine. But anyway, uh, it's called the I-90. And what that is, is a renewal of your green card. And uh, it was a good choice for one of the first things to work on. Starting, you know, learn how to do agile, learn how to do software development, Uh, do a thing that was pretty low risk because people who are renewing their green cards are very well known to the government already. You know, you have a long relationship and the chances of something bad happening in between are pretty low. 
So low risk to the government and to the American taxpayers. But they'd had a really hard time pressing the button and making it live. And so the digital service started about then. A lot of the work that we did at that time was just helping them get to the point where they were confident that nothing bad was going to happen with this thing out in the world. And to their credit, there was a great culture of learning there, so they were willing to take on, you know, soft launches and pilots and things like that. And that helped. Yeah, I mean, I think that the case that you or the the story that you're telling, right, is is something that probably a lot of people can relate to where, you know, it's either they come into a project halfway through or they realize they learn about UX research and they realize halfway through a project like, oh, my gosh, we should be doing usability tests on this. You know, yeah, like we should right. be like actually showing this to the people we're building it for. So, I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I would love so that- to dig into that. But that was a thing that they were not really aware of. Like the idea that you could do user-centered design and that usability testing was a major tool in that toolbox. Like they just, there was no awareness <laughs> at USCIS. And that's true in a lot of government, actually. Um, that that is even a thing. The expectation is that there's an IT organization that makes software appear they press a button and um, the users are forced to use it after classroom training uh, that can last anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of months. And that there's then supervised work while uh, somebody on the local team acts as user support and continuous training basically like that is what they are used to. And that was how they were operating. And when we came in, when the digital service came in and said, Hey, you know what, if you do some user research, if you design with the users rather than for the users, uh, you're going to have much better outcomes. Uh, you'll have better user acceptance for one thing. Um, but people will be productive a lot sooner. They're like, no way. Really? What? that's not that. Yeah, no, no, that's not how we work here. We're not doing that. Um, (laughs) so (laughs) that's how tricking teams into doing usability testing started to happen. The advantage I had was that a bunch of the front end developers, software engineers that were contractors came from places where they had taken part in user research and usability testing before, And they're like, where's the usability testing? Um, But that wasn't true for everybody. And I couldn't do all the design that there was to do. So I had to set up work with all of the teams so that they would do enough, that I could teach them enough that they could start to recognize the difference between good and bad design. And by that, I mean, this is going to work for the users. This is not going to work for the users. So like it was literally conversations about that and a lot just talking every day and going to meetings and going to demos and getting the front end developers to trust me so that when they got a story, a user story that they didn't know how to implement, they would come to me and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of struggling with how to, what to do with this, can we talk? And I would say, yes, let's go to the whiteboard. And I would give them the marker 
and we would start to sketch things out. They started to like that process of sketching. And then we would create prototypes or mock-ups where then I would just say, hey, you know what? It would be really great to get some feedback from a couple of users before you actually commit any code. And they'd be like, that's a really good idea. And so we would set up remote usability test sessions. And pretty soon... They just sort of expected that kind of stuff to continue to happen. And I never taught, I didn't talk about it as usability testing and I didn't talk about what we were doing as design. Um, there are a bunch of different reasons for that. One was there is no good reason to do that. The other was they had this group called end user testing that thought, well, at least leadership thought they were doing usability testing. They weren't, <laughs> they were doing function <laughs> testing, <laughs> But they called it usability testing, and it was important that they called it usability testing because they had to deal with the union that all the immigration officers belonged to. And so I couldn't, I couldn't even say that what I was doing was usability testing. So that was, that was kind of how it worked on a day-to-day basis. It was very organic and responsive to whatever was happening at the moment and opportunistic. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think there's probably so many researchers who kind of started in a similar position, uh, you know, where it was like, I'm at this company, this is clearly a need. I'm now going to start doing this without like asking anyone's permission and without actually saying that this is what I'm doing. Yeah. How did you prioritize what you were working on? Like, how did you approach the project? Well, they already had a roadmap. So I worked it two ways, which was kind of exhausting. I don't recommend that people do this, actually, uh, having learned a number of lessons. I worked it two ways. Way one was go to demos, which was really too late, though ultimately we changed the process within the sprints, and that helped a lot. And the other way was to look at what was happening a couple of sprints out in the roadmap and uh, start working with business analysts who could start creating sketches and prototypes that we could then test. And so that helped a lot. Actually, that established a set of work that then the front end developers could work from. The thing I didn't like about that was the handoff. We didn't have product teams. All of the teams worked on everything. And if I could have had product teams, uh, it would have made it easier for for me to kind of set them up for success and get a cadence going where they were including design practice and usability testing as part of their sprints rather than my kind of haphazard emergency response. Yeah. How did, I mean, you know, looking back on this experience now, like what were the, you know, what are the main things that you took away from that experience for your career? Like what were the main this is what I learned and this is what I'm, you know, this is how I changed my practice or. So things that I learned uh, were really around, well, first letting go because I couldn't do all the design, Um, bringing the teams that I worked with uh, through a process of uh, getting them to some basic literacy around design, good and bad design will work for users, won't work for users, and possibly up to some level of fluency where they could have a conversation about 
we could, let's go do some user research about that because we don't actually understand how that part of the work works. Yeah. Thing two is to try to approach everything, even though this is a giant piece of software, in small pieces. Do a small prototype that would demonstrate easily, you know, make visual very quickly an innovation that um, would make the process better. Um, and that came to mitigating risk. And that was where usability testing actually becomes super useful and a bigger, a much bigger part of the conversation. So at first, mitigating and redefining risk uh, was about convincing leadership that you could launch a thing out into the world for a short time. See what happens. You know, watch it carefully. See what happens. Shut it down if anything breaks. And, you know, return to the way things were before that if it, if it had broken. But that gradually led to, hey, you know what? We, we can do this internally <laughs> before we go public by basically doing a usability test or a series of them. And they're like, oh, okay, like that. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. Um, usability tests are obviously like such a great way to do that, right? You can find 85% of the problems with five tests. And I would love to kind of talk to you more specifically about how you actually run your usability test because, um, you know, I've been having conversations with all sorts of people who are part of the UX research community and and it's been interesting to me how, you know, even people who are working at like huge companies bring up to me like, oh, I, I just sometimes, you know, suffer from or deal with like imposter syndrome. Um, and so I would love to kind of talk to you who's a, as much of an expert on usability testing as probably anyone in the world, just about the do's and don'ts. Like, here's how you run a usability test and, you know, here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do. Sure. So the key thing about doing a usability test is understanding why you are conducting this test. Um, you have kind of expensive participants there because you've gone through a lot to recruit them and get them in the room with you or uh, have them on a remote hookup. And they're doing you a huge favor. And so understanding exactly why you are doing a usability study or a usability test and documenting this with the team you can't do everything in one test. So what's the focus here? The research question or the focus question has to be clear and specific and measurable. It's that simple. Also, open-ended. And then um, tying those two or three, not too many at any one time, focus questions to what are the behaviors you want to observe? And that is around the tasks and activities that people are going to do uh, in the study. So you're not going to ask the research questions of the participants. You want to get them to a place where you can observe their behavior and you, by their behavior and their comments uh, and how they interact, answer those questions. This is not a questionnaire. This is not a survey that you're administering personally. Um, it's not even an interview. The whole point is to observe as much as possible. Yeah. And it, when you're running a 
um, when you're running a usability test, like who do you invite to observe? Or everybody, you know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> everybody who makes design decisions needs to be uh, exposed to the experience users are having. And by everybody, I mean engineers, front end and back end, because surprisingly, some of the things that you might want to do as a designer on the front end rely on what the technical stack is on the back end. So if you're proposing something that's not feasibly implementable on the back end, then you have a new constraint and you have to go back to the drawing board. So all the engineers, um, the product manager, QA, everybody, including legal and compliance. So if you work in an industry that's heavily regulated, there's somebody who's looking at your stuff and saying, yes, this, I can get this through the regulatory agency. No, I can't. The rule of thumb that I have completely stolen from Jared Spool is that everybody on the team should have at least two hours of exposure, direct exposure to users uh, every six weeks. And the really successful teams are doing it much more often. Yeah. How, so, have, you, how have you seen it affect team outcomes? You know what I mean? Like when you're inviting all of these people, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you've had projects where sometimes people come and other times people don't come. You know, how have you seen the outcome affected by who is and isn't observing these? Uh, yeah. So the outcome gets affected when there is no culture of learning. So uh, the team is not interested in feedback. And that is usually because they're not rewarded for improving their product. They're rewarded for shipping. So then what happens is that burden gets put someplace else, um, customer support or sales or training. And, you know, companies look at that stuff as the just cost centers. But the truth is, you could conceivably even create enterprise software that did not need training, uh, classroom training. Much as I do not like the idea of eliminating jobs, people who are good at training are good at other things. They, they, can, <laughs> yeah. they can move some, they could do user research and usability testing, for example. While the fear among teams often is, well, if we do a user research and usability testing, that's just going to slow us down. What ultimately happens is uh, they are faster, more responsive, and their product is better if everybody takes part in the user research and usability testing because there's a much more vibrant conversation about user needs. Everybody knows what the user needs are that way. And instead of just being a product manager, product manager sort of becomes the experience owner, which is a way different way of thinking about it. This also turns UXers and researchers especially into more like facilitators, coaches, and consultants within their own team because more people are taking on uh, responsibility for doing more of the user research work. And so that means that you don't have the burden as the researcher of knowing everything about the user experience and forcing a mind meld with everybody else on your team, which never works. It has never, ever worked, no matter how good your reports are. It is never going to work. So the only way to make it really awesome and to have the most effective teams with the best products 
is for everybody to be engaged in the user research and the usability testing. Um, Jared likes to talk about it as um, you contracting out a vacation. Like you could send me to go take your vacation for you and I can send you pictures of, you know, my toes in the sand and the delicious <laughs> drink that I had on your behalf. It is not like being there. Um, and that is effectively what we're doing when we send out research teams to do user research and usability testing and then report back. Feels efficient. It's not. Yeah, I love I, I love how strong of a point you made that because, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people spend months or years learning that and spend so much time creating these reports and sending out these reports and getting frustrated that no one's reading their reports, um, you know, and. And as a researcher, it's funny because I feel like, you know, all the time we have these aha moments of like, oh, my gosh, I'm watching this customer go through this experience and like I'm, I'm seeing it in a totally new light that I never, even though, you know, I've probably gone through it a number of times, seen it myself. And then, you know, sometimes we think we can send a report out that will uh, communicate that. But you're right. It's totally like sending a picture of yourself with your toes in the sand and and, you know, expecting the person to understand what that experience is actually like. Yeah. Yeah. So a key to all this is that the whole team has to take part in the um, synthesis of the data. A lot of the value of doing user research and usability testing as a team is just in experiencing the experience your users are having. But you have to distill that somehow to get to what your design direction is going to be. And so um, through a, a series of activities that I've developed over years, uh, the best way to do that is collaboratively and, um, and quickly uh, as soon as possible after you've, you've finished collecting data or you've finished a phase of collecting data. And so uh, typically what I do with my teams is the day after we do the last session, whatever that session is, we do a KJ activity, which is a really quick consensus prioritization of what the problems are. If you just uh, type KJ activity into your favorite search engine, you'll probably end up with an article either by Jared or by me that lays out the steps and includes a script for what to do. It's really simple. And you get to your top five or seven priority items within an hour. Then you can focus on those, those priority items and everybody brings, they bring out their observations about that, uh, which means all that note taking was not wasted. Um, <laughs> uh, so you start documenting all the observations around that particular priority item. And then you look at, okay, why did that happen? What inferences can we draw that are causing the gap between the thing that we made and what users wanted to do and how they did it? Um, what are our informed judgments now? And I say informed because we've observed users interacting this way about what could possibly be happening and why. And you generate all the inferences that you can possibly think of. Everybody's brainstorming inferences. And then you come back the observations, which are basically your data to say, okay, which of these inferences has the greatest weight of data to support them? Where's the evidence to support them? And you start eliminating the ones that don't have any evidence to support them. And you winnow down to the ones that do. And out of that design direction becomes crystal clear really quickly. And it's very easy to come to consensus on 
what you should do to remedy the problem. And teams get pretty good at that process after a little practice. Yeah, one of the things that you've talked about a lot is kind of like moving teams from design literacy to design fluency. And, you know, just how much usability testing really is such a key um, factor in in making that transition. And and I love how you keep talking about not only doing the testing, but like training the teams to do the testing, training the teams to like have these debrief sessions. Um because it, it's almost, you know, you're you're becoming just like a, an advocate or a trainer yourself. Yeah, you're really facilitating your teams doing this work uh, to experience the experience their users are having and understand the needs their users are having directly. And that is going to be an interesting transition to watch a lot of people go through over the next few years because there's just way more of this work to do than we can possibly get done. There are choices there. One is you can be overworked and frustrated mm-hmm. <laughs> or you can let go and empower the teams that you work with to to own the experience that they're developing for. Yeah. I think that's an amusing insight. Because you're right, there is way more work than, uh, you know, official UX researchers can do on their own. Right. Um, Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Dana. This has been awesome to just kind of pick your brain and like what an incredible and unique experience, uh, you know, doing this work um, in the digital service. And um, yeah, it's really cool to talk to someone who has your level of experience in this field where there are so many, um, you know, people who are a little bit newer to it. Well, I'm I'm delighted to get to share some of what I've learned over the years, and um, I hope it will be useful, usable, and pleasant for people who are listening. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Dana, join us in the Slack group next Thursday, April 13th for a Q&A. If you haven't already, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Also want to say thanks to Laura Levitt, who creates original graphics for each episode. You can see them under the episodes tab on the website or by following us on Twitter. See you next time.